This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, a podcast honouring the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Poitier. My name's Andrew Carroll. And today we are talking about mermaid man himself, Ernest Borgnine. Andrew, run down his history. Ernest Borgnine was born in 1917 to Italian immigrants and spent much of his childhood and adolescence in New Haven, Connecticut. In 1935, he joined the Navy and served until 1941, before re-enlisting in 1942 after the attack on Pearl Harbor. He served on an anti-submarine ship for the duration of the war and was honourably discharged in 1945 with several medals to his name. At a loose end, Borgnine took his mother's suggestion of acting to heart and studied theatre in Connecticut and Virginia. By 1949, he was acting on Broadway and his film debut came in the 1951 adventure film China Corsair. Over the next four years, Borgnine would act opposite Frank Sinatra and Spencer Tracy and beat the two for the Best Actor Oscar in 1956 when he won for Marty. Relied on as both an unconventional lead and a character actor, Borgnine never lacked for work. His most famous roles include Bad Day at Black Rock, The Flight of the Phoenix, The Dirty Dozen, the Wild Bunch, and The Poseidon Adventure. In 1962, Borgnine achieved something rare, as he not only continued to star in successful films, but also led the popular sitcom McHale's Navy, for which he was nominated for an Emmy. In the 1980s, he had a supporting role in the Jan Michael Vincent-led TV series Airwolf, and John Carpenter's dystopian thriller Escape from New York. Borgnine starred opposite Brandon Lee in Laser Mission and in the feature film adaptation of McHale's Navy in the 1990s and provided the voice for the elderly superhero Mermaid Man in Spongebob Squarepants. Ernest Borgnine acted right up until his death in 2012 at the age of 95. Yeah, um, it was your suggestion to cover Borgnine, but um, I found prepping this episode a real treat because... I got to fill all bangers. Yeah, all bangers. Fill in some blank spots and like watch some classics for the first time, like Bad Day at Black Rock, The Dirty Dozen, Oscar Best Picture winner and Palm Door winner Marty. Mm. Um, I got to revisit The Wild Bunch, a movie my dad showed me when I was maybe a bit too young to really appreciate. You're always a bit too young to exactly to just, watch The Wild Bunch. When I watched it for the first time, I was like missing out on all the themes. I was like, this is kind of dour, but the show ends really good. But uh, Borgnine, just speaking generally about him, very distinct actor um, who couldn't help but draw your eye in terms of how striking he wants to look at, but also how magnetic and charismatic he was and personality. You know, he's known for having this stocky build, gruff but relaxed voice and, you know, big gap tooth grin. And I think those traits helped him make him be very versatile in the roles he took on because he had this tough masculinity but also this natural, affable nature that could be deployed to sinister effect. So that led him to play a lot of villains, like a lot of his early roles are villains like Bad Day at Black Rock. Um, but yet that smile and affability, and also this kind of tender quality he has, along with that toughness, meant he was perfect to play the lead character Marty, you know, this working class, really good-natured, 30-something bachelor, you know, close to giving up on true love. Aren't we all? Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think... One of Borgnine's biggest strengths was that, like, whether he was playing characters who were good or bad or somewhere in between, like in The Dirty Dozen or Hustle, which I watched this, um, he made them feel real. Like, not only did he, like, not look like your conventional movie star, but he carried himself and had the energy of a regular guy. Like, while he was an incredible performer, watching him on screen is almost like watching one of your dad's friends in a movie. Yeah, or, yeah. Like, a particularly charismatic kind of patron at your local bar. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And um, on that, like, the story of how he got into making Acting, movies yeah. great you know the story about his mother convincing him to well he always looked like he always acted a clown why not try it for real yeah and then like he said, as he says like 10 years later Grace Kelly's handing me a yeah. Oscar like it's like the stuff of like stuff of Hollywood frames <laughs> and uh it seems like one of those actors we particularly like on the show where he chose his movies based more on the quality of the script and his potential collaborators than the size of the role on just it. like a grandpa for Christmas yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which sounds like a lovely movie. I won't, I won't deny. I really want to see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gone on the watches. I, yeah. Myself, due to the like, nature of the show, we cram a bunch of movies in a short period of time, and there's always stuff you're going to miss out on. Mm-hmm. There's so many. Like, I would love to watch Vera Cruz from Here to Eternity, Johnny Guitar, kind mm-hmm. of saving Johnny Guitar for our inevitable Sterling Hayden episode. Yeah. But um, I came away from this with a lot of, like, it's going on the letterbox to keep. Yeah. But, um,. He said about like his kind of the way he chooses roles. He's like, I don't care whether a role is ten minutes long or two hours, and I don't care whether my name is up there on top either. Matter of fact, I'd rather have someone else get top billing. Then if the picture bombs, they get the blame, not me. <laughs> um, and I think as a result of this ethos, he ended up one of the most like acclaimed filmographies in totality than we've ever covered on the show. Mm. And um, plus, he voiced Mermaid Man, SpongeBob, so one of the goats for that. Mermaid Man, even. <laughs> 
Let's do it, yeah. A one-armed stranger, John J. McCready, played by Spencer Tracy, arrives in the small desert town of Black Rock. The residents are instantly suspicious, and when it is revealed that McCready is looking for a Japanese-American farmer named Kamoko, some of the men... Reno Smith, played by Robert Ryan, who will feature a lot in this episode, much like... Yeah, yeah. Just above Lee Marvin, who is in... Two. Two, yeah. Uh, Coley Trimble, played by Ernest Borgnine, and Hector David, played by Lee Marvin, become hostile and attempt to make McReady leave town or kill him before he discovers the secret that Kamoko hid. Your friend's a very argumentative fellow. Sort of unpredictable, too. Got a temper like a rattlesnake. That's me all over. I'm half horse, half alligator. You mess with me and I'll kick a lung out of you. What do you think of that? No comment. You know, talking to you is like pulling teeth. You wear me out. You're a yellow belly Jap lover. Am I right or wrong? You're not only wrong, you're wrong at the top of your voice. You don't like my voice? I think your friend is trying to start trouble. Why ever would he want to do that? To me, this is one of the best premises of a movie ever. Mm. How simple it is, in almost like an elemental way. It's basically just a mysterious stranger wanders into an isolated town, and the townspeople are immediately suspicious of them for also mysterious reasons, and you're not sure who you should trust at the start, at least. And um, on top of that, like this movie boasts a great dialogue, an almost constantly tense atmosphere, this very quiet yet effortlessly commanding performance by two-time Oscar winner Spencer Tracy as John J. McCready, this outsider. And also, yeah, the movie has these like stunning neo-Western vistas coming yeah. by director John Sturgis, who would go on to make The Magnificent Seven. Also, like, the, the eventual explanation for the distrust between the townspeople and the Tracy character, without spoiling, it was pretty ahead of its time for the 50s. Yeah, so yeah very much so, yeah. It has all these great things going for it that help make it a classic, but the basic setup is so strong that I think you could remake this in any time in any part of the world and it could work. Mm, yeah. But uh, did you like it? Are you, are you up on this design? I loved it, yeah. I thought it was great. Uh, I preferred Marty, I won't lie, but um, I, this is still like a four out of five, solid four out of five, maybe four and a half mm. on a good day. Yeah. yeah. The uh, Marty is so intimate and personal uh, that it feels you know fine when you're watching it on a... TV screen at home, whereas Bad Day at Black Rock is built for the picture house. Sure, yeah. I think, I do even think of comparing them, honestly, apart from the fact that Borden's in them, but I think Bad Day at Black Rock is more the type of movie I'd like, generally. Yeah. And I really did love it. Marty just, I really... Knocked my my fucking socks off, yeah. yeah. I I was thinking about Marty, I was re-watching clips of Marty for this, and um, I started crying. (laughs) But, um... Yeah, Borgnine in this, though, like, he's part of an incredible ensemble cast, which includes three actors that would go on to be in The Dirty Dozen, you know, um, Borgnine, Lee Marvin, Robert Ryan. Pretty soon into the movie, Robert Ryan's character, Reno Smith, is revealed to be this sinister main antagonist. Mm. He's the unofficial leader of this desert town of Black Rock. And Marvin and Borgnine's characters are his underlings, essentially. And to me, Borgnine's character, Colby Trimble, is just the ultimate personification of those bullies who aren't really smart enough to be the leader of the yeah. movies, but are content to just kind of fall in line and follow the leader blindly and do his bidding. Yeah. There's that amazingly staged scene about a third of the way into this film where all the bad guys have gathered at the train level crossing and they're debating what to do about McCready and the baddie Smith asks Borgnine's character Trimble like his thoughts on the matter and um, Trimble says like, I think McCready's a nothing, a nobody. So it's nothing to worry about. What can he find out? And Smith says back sarcastically, like, you've got brains. And then he lays out this big argument of why McCready is trouble. And to be fair, Smith should be worried, mm, yeah. given you know, what his character did. But a lot of his argument is, isn't based on any real concrete evidence. It's more hearsay. The McCready character lost an arm in World War II, and Smith says about him, I know these main guys, their minds get twisted, they put on hair shirts and act like martyrs, all of them are do-gooders, freaks, <laughs> troublemakers, and then he adds, this guy's like a carrier of smallpox, since he's arrived this town has a fever, an affection, and it's spreading, and just after giving this like foreboding monologue where he's basically said like they've got to kill McCready, Smith turns to Borgnine's Trimble and says, but if you want to take the chance... And Borgnine Trimble looks around frazzled and says, Not me! <laughs> As if he didn't just basically say, like, a few minutes ago, it'll be grand. Yeah, yeah. And, um, 
But not only does, like, Smith get Trimble to completely change his opinion, by the end of that scene, Trimble has agreed to kill McCready. Yeah. <laughs> and it also seems happy to do it. Like, as they walk away from the scene, Borgnine's smiling as if his character Trimble is like, glad we worked that out. Well, it's because a decision's been made for him rather than him having to make a decision himself because uh, he he's the kind of guy who's only ever made one morally complex decision in his life back in 1941 uh, over what what happened to Komoko. And, and that action poisoned the town and its residents and its current residents forever uh, and one more decision like that and the town will just rot and crumble fully and so that's why he's just you know uh, he's desperate never to make any, never to make a decision like that again mm. and that's kind of the impetus of his character being so hot headed and impulsive in that uh, he's desperate for this like very poorly buried secret and poorly kept secret not to be uh, dug up and that's what makes this like story of men rendered very impotent and angry by isolation and failure uh, so that they take out their anger on those weaker than themselves so compelling. Mm. Um, and there's that brilliant scene in the cafe or the bar or whatever where he's like, you're a yellow-bellied Jap lover. Am I right or wrong? And Spencer Tracy just very quietly goes, you're not just wrong. You're wrong at the top of your voice. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> And it's just a, it's one of these films that that is only eighty minutes long, by the way. Um, about all an all too kind of human guilt boiling over in the open country at high summer, and that's box office gold. Um, and when given the opportunity, it's a very very kind of human guilt as well, because when given the opportunity to do the right thing, many characters only dig themselves dig their heads further into the sand. And at, by the end of it, um, McCready only has I think two people helping him. Well, technically three, but one's sort of, you know, one uh, one's a bit of a flip-flopper yeah. uh, at the end. Um, and it is kind of cool to see Lee Marvin, because he gets made sheriff at one point uh, by um, Smith. I was wondering, that, that is, can't be like the official way it was done. <laughs> no, no. Well, in small towns like Blackrock, who knows? Maybe. Yeah. Um, but he finally gets to do to do his like cool cowboy thing where he's like taking his revolver out of his holster and spinning it around and pointing it this way and that and he put and putting it back into his holster. But it's like, it's completely redundant because first of all, he, his own cowardly sadism, he's just like, you're, you're a bad guy. You're a horrible person. And then he gets knocked out by a fire hose nozzle as well. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, and the thing about the what get what gets me is like, oh, this town has something to hide. Is that everyone in it just holds themselves like a fight is about to break out? Mm. Like they always have their fists like half cocked at their sides. Really, really great like piece of direction. I think if yeah. that was if that's what the decision was made by the director. And um, did you in that scene where he's harassing Spencer Tracy's character in the diner, mm. like? It's that classic, like, I don't know, mean girls y thing where it's like Spencer Tracy is like alone sitting and having his meal, and you know, he's like, That's my stool. Yeah. And he moves, makes a move to another stool, and then he's like, Actually, this stool's not that comfy. I'm going to take your stool. And mm. then he like pours ketchup, like loads of ketchup on this dinner. Yeah. And all this stuff. And then he, he's trying to goad Spencer Tracy into a fight so that he can basically kill him in self defense. Mm. And Spencer Tracy, um, we only learn at that moment knows uh, martial arts. Kung Fu, yeah, yeah. One-armed. <laughs> One-armed martial arts, like, yeah. Disables Borgnine's character. Yeah. Throws him through the saloon door. Yeah. Door of this like, uh, small-town diner. Apparently, um, it's reported that Borgnine agreed to do the crash through the door himself, but expected the door to swing open as he went into the street. However, apparently, without telling him, Sturgis nailed the door shut <laughs> so that he could get a real shock reaction from the actor when the door came off the hinges. And it ended, up, it ended up on the street with him. And um, I watched the scene again after hearing that. And Borgnine does genuinely seem a bit bewildered. <laughs> which works for the moment. Although it's probably something a director uh, wouldn't be allowed to do now. Mm. For good reason. Yeah, honestly. yeah. But um, yeah, just in Borgnine's performance in this, just a really great out example of his ability. Take a sporting character only with only a few scenes, make them stand out and feel real and lived in. But what's interesting though is... Tracy gets nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars for Band mm. Black Rock, but loses to Borgnine himself for yeah. Marty, which came out the same year, so we should get into that. Yeah, sure. Marty is a 34-year-old butcher and bachelor, the oldest of six children, all of whom have married and moved out of the family home, leaving Marty alone with his loving but interfering mother, Teresa, played by Esther Minciot. Marty heads out one Saturday with his equally awkward but less decent friend, Angie, played by Joe Mantell, to the Stardust Ballroom for a dance. There, he meets the plain but charming high school teacher Clara, played by Betsy Blair, and the two fall head over heels for each other. 
Ma, when are you going to give up? You got a bachelor on your hands. I ain't never going to get married. Uh, you're going to get married. Ma, sooner or later, there comes a point in a man's life when he's got to face some facts. And one fact I got to face is that whatever it is that women like, I ain't got it. I chased after enough girls in my life. I, I went to enough dances. I got hurt enough. I don't want to get hurt no more. I just called up a girl this afternoon. I got a real brush off, boy. I figured I was past the point of being hurt, but that hurt. Some stupid woman who I didn't even want to call up. She gave me the brush. No, Ma, I don't want to go to Stardust Ballroom because all that ever happened to me there was girls made me feel like I was a, a bug. I got feelings, you know. I had enough pain. No thanks, Ma. Marty. No. I'm going to stay home tonight and watch the hit parade. Are you going to die without a son? So I'll die without a son. Oh, Marty, put on the blue suit, huh? Blue suit, gray suit. I'm just a fat little man, a fat, ugly man. You're not ugly. I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. Marty. Ma, leave me alone. Ma, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? I'm miserable enough as it is. All right, so I'll go to the Stardust Ball. Ma, I'll put on a blue suit and I'll go. And you know what I'm going to get for my trouble? Heartache. A big night of heartache. Such a wonderful film. It is really great. <laughs> really, uh, really amazing. It's such an everyday realistic story to mm. make a movie about that I'm almost surprised it got made that producers didn't think it would be mundane. Mm. Because it's certainly not that and it's incredibly entertaining. I think it's down to these two main creative forces on the movie, like the movie's writer, um, the legendary Paddy Chayefsky, only screenwriter to win like three Oscars for sole screenwriting. Damn. On um, Marty Network and The Hospital. And then he also wrote Altered States, which is like a top 20 movie for me, like one of the best movies of all time. So, legendary. And the other is Borgnine. And Shaevsky adapted it from his um, teleplay of the same name. And when writing it, says that he wanted to pen the most ordinary love story in the world. And like that must have been so revolutionary for the time because like there were a lot of romantic movies made mm, in the 40s yeah. and 50s. It was a very mainstream genre, but they often starred matinee idols like... Cary Grant or Humphrey Bogart or James Stewart and had these more convoluted epic stories and it must have been so refreshing then I know even watching it for the first time a week ago yeah, it was really refreshing to just watch a love story that just takes place over a day and stars two people who don't look like these perfect models and are playing people that have like regular lives you know? mm-hmm. yeah I think most movies will have characters we like but it's where you find a character you love mm. and Marty is that character yeah, even I, though he's like in his own way kind of flawed, you know. Like, uh, yeah, moments. at certain moments, sure, but yeah, but no, he's nowhere near as flawed as nearly everyone else yes, in the movie. Yeah, and I think the the flaw, if what we're talking about is the is the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, then it's like a very of the time flaw, I think. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of course. And you know, the character almost immediately kind of realizes what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. This really like beautiful moment, like, mm. but um. And yeah, this movie is so realistic in terms of like just the high drama of an Italian family. I figured you'd love this movie felt, for different reasons than I did. It felt really relatable yeah, to me. Yeah. And, like, it also very important is the sort of Italian immigrants that cast real Italians. Mm. It's one of the rare depictions of like, Italians in mm. Hollywood. It doesn't feel phony to me. Um, but also, like, the circular conversations of friends who kind of know each other so long that they sort of run out of things to say to each other. Yeah, so, yeah. What do you want to do tonight? Yeah. Oh, what do you want to do? Saturday night it feels like we should do something. Yeah. Mm. What do you want to do? <laughs> like those things. <laughs> and also really funny and quite believable that like the whole movie Marty is pretty selfless for others. Like even as people are constantly bothering him, being like Marty, when are you gonna settle down and you, know, you should be ashamed of yourself, Marty. Yeah. You're Jesus. 30, you're thirty-four for Pete's sake. All your brothers and sisters are married. <laughs> and like that first scene in the butchers is so awkward. Yeah. The woman customer keep saying that Marty's obviously uncomfortable mm. by it but is acting politely and eventually she leaves and you can see that he's like relieved but then the next customer comes and just immediately starts yeah, saying yeah. so funny I really like the repetition of when they're talking about his youngest brother getting married and he's like oh yeah it was a very nice affair oh yeah yeah that's really great <laughs> And then, and then he says it in casual conversation because he thinks it is a really nice affair. He's just sick of being asked yeah, about it. There is. He describes like something like there was like chocolate fountain or something, and you're mm. like, it does sound really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's talking about the beef they served, and he's like, as a butcher, I know. Yeah, yeah. 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 But his mom is on the back about being single all the time, and in that big dinner scene, like he tells her, whatever it is, women like, I ain't got it. Mm. And uh, but then he does meet this woman, this similar wallflowery type to Marty named Clara, played by Betsy Bear, and they instantly hit it off and have this occasionally awkward but mostly magical night. Yet, well, you think everyone would be happy for Marty, they kind of try and sabotage. Yeah, like, yeah. His friends get jealous. His mother realizes that if Marty were to get married, it would have a big impact on her life. So they all try to convince him not to call her, and I think that feels oddly true to life. And 
I actually found the movie quite tense in its last act when the question is like is Marty going to let these people who he obviously loves mm. get in his head or is he going to prioritise himself for once and his own happiness and there's a Borgnine his obit in The Guardian were kind of a really nice story about him being cast in Marty apparently the movie's producer Harold Hecht wanted Rod Steiger in the title role because he played the character in the TV version mm. not Italian so listen mm. <laughs> but he, he didn't want to do it for some reason and Borgnine was then offered the role after apparently a female guest at a Hollywood reception remarked to Hecht that Borgnine, though she thought he wasn't conventionally attractive, she thought that he possessed this oddly tender quality which made her yearn to mother him. <laughs> what a weird thing to say to someone about someone else and at a party. Yeah. They, they note that she said it disinterestingly. It was like, How do you say that disinterestingly? Yeah. It's like, oh, I want to mother him. Yeah. Um, but Hecht is like, that's when I decided to give him the part. Mm. Also, according to Borgnine, the director Robert Aldrich, who we'll talk about later, big figure in Borgnine's career, he was the one who turned on Hecht to Bornan after direct him and Vera Cruz the year before so like apparently he was at a party they're always going to parties these people mm. um, he, went, he was asked at a party if he knew anyone who could play Marty and Aldrich recommended him and on this Bornan said when I go away on location not only to keep my own spirits up but everyone else's I become a clown I love to keep other people happy because when I go behind my door at night I want to remember that happiness instead of being glum and gloomy at the end of the day Bob Aldrich eventually saw the difference between the two I could play a bad guy and I could play that crazy fellow and he put two and two together which sounds like a very marty quote mm, <laughs> yeah movie. yeah I just don't want to feel glum you know <laughs> um, and I, I think they were right to cast this was Borgnine's like uh, first star role and I think they're right to cast an actor who typically plays supporting roles in the part of Marty because the character himself is someone who's spent most of his life being a supporting player yeah. to others yeah. who must learn to prioritise himself and like control his narrative. So it's like really clever meta-casting as well. Um, yeah, and there is, even though like Borna has qualities that make him a good fit to play villains, there's just is something inherently very magnetic, very watchable and just very likeable about him. So, like, if you give him a character that is not overly aggro or coarse, like, audiences mm. will instantly like and be interested in that character, I feel like. Yeah, much like Mermaid Man. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah any, any other thoughts on him and Marty? What got it for me is that, uh, what made me, like, get it is that it's a film that kind of details those rare moments in life where it feels like you're really clicking with someone whether platonically or romantically and someone you feel like you're feel like someone you feel like bearing your heart and soul to and realizing that in those few hours that you've that you've spoken to them for the first time this might be the person for you and better yet you might be the person for them in that moment and it could you know extend beyond there if if, if the if the stars align but uh, yeah that that's what really clicked for me because i've had those moments before um whether platonically or romantically and i've thought wow this is great this is the happiest i've ever been in my my life and you see that reflected in Marty and that's what makes it so like you feel like punching a bus stop sign and running through traffic yeah, yeah. trying to hail down a cab because the fact that there's so much in the movie where he feels like he's withholding like he's putting he's putting on a brave face mm, there's like yeah. he doesn't want his mom to be like disappointed in him and he wants to like seem like he's not lonely because he's being really pleasant in that dinner conversation and then his mom kind of pushes him he's like what do you want me to say I'm mm. miserable <laughs> um, but for someone who the whole movie has been withholding in that scene in the diner when they're like walking down the street he's like I can't stop talking I'm so excited <laughs> um, it really does feel like it's all like spilling out yeah yeah, yeah. and it's, it's all this emotion it's very beautiful yeah and it's funny because he's telling her he's telling um, uh, Clara that story about where he was at shooting practice and the guy who was firing beside him was cross-eyed and couldn't hit a single thing but he and he was firing from a crouched position with a really unwieldy gun and was known as the best shot in the battalion because the cross-eyed guy hit his target dead on yeah, and it's like and he's 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 obviously told this story a thousand times before to his family and friends, but now he gets to tell it to someone new and he just finds new life in it and himself and it's like, wow. He can't stop laughing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um, I just can't get over like, how different he is in Bad Day Black Rock to Marty. Like, you see his character in Bad Day Black Rock and you just think, just from the way he carries himself, like, this dude is dangerous, mm. threatening, like, I don't want to mess with him. Whereas in Marty, like, he's so, like, hard on his sleeve and vulnerable emotionally. You, you just want to give him a hug. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mentioned him trying to, like, hide his awkwardness in the butcher shop at the beginning. It's also the devastating scene where, you know, he asks out the woman he met in the cinema a few weeks ago on the phone. Mm. And we don't hear her side of the conversation. The camera just, like, stays on him in this unbroken take because he's talking and you can tell he's really nervous. But it's clear at first she doesn't remember him, <laughs> which is t- tough beef. Yeah. Uh, and then once she does, she just doesn't want to go out on the date. And all I can think of watching that scene was that bit in The Simpsons where Lisa rejects Ralph. And, yeah, exactly. You can literally see the point where his heart breaks yeah, in yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Like watching Borderlands hope 
turn to despair in the scene and him trying to remain composed is really agonizing and affected by it. and that scene is all like a wonder mm. like it's and it's all like unspoken like he's because he's he's what he's saying is completely opposite to how he feels yeah it's yeah. really like stunning acting like in that moment you're like oscar <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah and also there's like the bit that made me cry like preparing for this is um you know when his mother pressures him about meeting a girl and at first he tries to downplay it but eventually he can't help but unleashing all this pain and sorrow on her and he's like I'm ugly I'm ugly I'm ugly ma leave me alone I'm miserable enough as it is alright so I'll go to the Stardust Ballroom I'll put on a blue suit and I'll go and you know what I'm gonna get from a troll heartache a big night of heartache and he like grabs his heart um but then he feels bad for shedding his mother and he like taps her regretfully to say sorry and tries to go back to eating the food kind of peacefully than yeah. we were before but it feels forced yeah well to put tears yeah <laughs> it's like <laughs> <take> <laughs> um yeah and as I said like I like that Marty isn't like 100% this perfect angel like he, he's got flaws like he loses his temper like he and Clara have this great night and she's very shy and he's very excitable and can't stop talking so Borland gets to deliver loads of just amazingly written Shayevsky monologues which must be like the dream for any actor but eventually she agrees to come to his house to talk some more and he tries to kiss her and she rebuffs him and he almost blows everything by being like oh I want it was a lovely kiss but he immediately sees the error of his ways and he stumbles away from Clarence sits down quietly in the chair and Bordan looks so ashamed and he Marty utters quietly like I'm old enough to know better mm-hmm. which is a pretty amazing line yeah yeah and then Clara sort of says like you know I'd like to see you again very much the reason I didn't let you kiss me was because I just didn't know how to handle the situation and Bornan starts crying mm. and it's it's really raw and powerful and I, I don't want to spoil anything more but like the movie has a great ending yeah yeah, yeah. you ain't married yet Angie you should be ashamed of yourself <laughs> yeah yeah unbelievable and, and you're like yes Angie is like another kind of relatively like annoying friend <laughs> yeah well that's so that's what gets me about the movie for the first hour you're like no one here's a villain and then for the last half hour, half hour, you're like, I would put every single one of these people in prison so Marty could have a chance at happiness. Is there a oh, the, is the, the, His cousin. cousin. Yeah, so yeah. Cousin is the worst. Mm. Um, so I know, Marty, before watching it for this, I was only aware of this movie because it's weirdly a plot point in the Robert Redford movie quiz show. You know <laughs> uh, I'd seen the movie, but I don't remember it being a plot point. John Turturro's character is asked on the titular quiz show um, what won the Best Picture Oscar in 1955. was told by the producers to throw the question and say on the waterfront, even though he knows it was Marty. Mm. Um, so that's all I- like I knew about Marty to know anything about it other than that I actually googled the Marty quiz show to see if other people talk about this apparently one, cin- one cinema somewhere and did a double bill of quiz show and Marty wow so nice um, we move on Dirty Dozen yeah let's do it Lee Marvin plays John Reisman a tough as nails major in the US Army during World War II who was tasked by his boss Major General Sam Warden played by Ernest Bornheim to recruit 12 prisoner soldiers some of which are on death row for their crimes and then train and lead them on a dangerous mission in exchange for a possible reduction of their sentences their goal parachute behind enemy lines and attack a chalet in France full of Nazi generals well what do you say Major? I say it confirms a suspicion I've had for some time now sir you think we might share that suspicion Major? yes sir I think you should since I'll have to assume that we're over here to try to win the war, I don't think it'd pay to advertise the fact that one of the men that we're working for has to be a raving lunatic. Now that's enough, Major. You're here to be briefed on an operation. You have permission to ask questions about that operation. You do not have permission to make personal comments of any kind concerning the officers responsible for its conception. Now, is that clear? Yes. So either ask relevant questions or shut up. Would it be relevant to ask why I'm being offered this uh, mission? It's not, as you say, being offered. I'm volunteering. (laughs) Exactly, Major. You know, I'm glad you look at these things so realistically. I don't mean to appear unduly cautious, but if my personal survival is going to depend upon the performance of 12 deadheads, it might be helpful to know exactly what I have to train them for. Now, that's a very good question, Major. Tom Brewster, let's have that basic outline. Yes, sir. What do you think of this? This episode is starting to feel like one long TCM marathon. I know. <laughs> I do a lot of movies on TV for Joe, and I've written about the Dredios and so much, like, <laughs> like the plot of the movie. Yeah. But I'd never seen it until now. And really? I, yeah. Okay. Um, and Me neither, in fairness, yeah. It's a real canonical movie, because... Um, one of those, one of the best men on a mission movies. And inspired so much, both in terms of the sort of ragtag group thrown together for a mission, like, mm. even, um, I saw people compare, like... Rogue One to this <laughs> or, you know, yeah it's like not that. wrong yeah or, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, there's a few other ones I pulled out. Oh, Guardians of the Galaxy, you know. Mm. Um, obviously, Inglorious Bastards. There was a huge depth to this. Yeah. Both in terms of like the Lee Marvel character is very similar to the Bradley character. The last 30, 40 minutes have a lot of similarities to Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. But then also the idea of the criminal being recruited to be the hero becomes kind of a trope in like proper culture, like Escape from New York. Mm. But then also kind of bleeds into mainstream movies with like the comic book and then the ad- adaptations of Suicide Squad the upcoming Thunderbolts movie mm. like, is a Marvel comic book that is basically the same premise like all these super villains put together um, so it was nice to kind of watch the inspiration for it. and honestly I think it's in some respects maybe we've improved on it a little bit just in terms of like pacing and like fully capitalizing on the potential. special effects special yeah. effects but in other ways it's like we never really had actors who were like this dirty grizzled and, yeah. like, <laughs> and like it's this amazing thing is where you've got all these actors who were the supporting players in like the golden age of Hollywood movies but never yeah. a chance to lead them like Lee Marvin Ernest Borgnine George Kennedy Robert Ryan uh, Robert Ryan Telly Savalas yeah. but then you've also got these like new who would go on to become like new Hollywood icons like mm. John Cassavetes and Donald Sutherland and Jim Brown mm. and it's just this amazing blend but like a lot of them actually were served in World War II yeah, yeah. so there is this like added authenticity that comes with it mm. and um Lee Marvin shot in the ass at the Battle of Saipan <laughs> like uh, I always say this about Lee Marvel. We don't really have actors anymore who look like they that. could actually hurt you. Yeah, yeah. No, that's the thing. You know, I think I tweeted this as half as a joke, half as not a joke a while ago. You know, Lee Marvin was drunk every day of his life post-war and was shot at the Battle of Saipan. John Krasinski had the decency to fight ISIS for at least six months. <laughs> yes. Yeah, see? I'm right. Yeah. Um... He, there's, if you want to know more about Lee Marvin's person, like really good anecdotes about him in John Borman's autobiography. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I think it's called Conclusions, really, really good. Um, and, you know, this is not a glamorous story of heroes. It's a lot more complicated than that. Like, most of the men in this movie are not undertaking this mission for, like, altruistic reasons. Mm. Like, Maggot, the Titus of Oz character, is straight up evil. Mm. Um, plus, you know, the Dirty Dozen, not called that because they're tough, but because they won't shower and protest <laughs> yeah. and smell, which is really funny. But, like, they are obviously trying to strike a blow against Nazis in the final act, which, as far as war causes go, is pretty honourable. Yeah. But a lot of German women are killed in that section of the movie, in the chateau, uh, along with the men. And that was, yeah, pretty horribly. The like, combination of gasoline and grenades is not a good way to die. And it was controversial for the time, but Marvin and the movie's director, Rob Aldrich, defended it, basically saying, my question, war's hell, mm, you know? Yeah. And, um... I was shot in the ass at the Battle of Saipan. What have you got to say? Yeah. And to be honest, I feel like at least big budget Hollywood cinema, outside of the likes of, like, huge directors like Scorsese or Tantino, were basically, like, franchises upon themselves. Mm. Like, we've kind of regressed back to classical Hollywood cinema, where, like, all the main actors are model-level handsome, and the characters they play are blandly heroic, and the movies themselves are a little bit afraid to get into any kind of interesting moral complexity, or have the main figures of their films do anything that could risk alienating people. Yeah, yeah. And what I like about The Dirty Dozen is that... Yeah, there's no... There's no it's no, not glamorous. Yeah, Rocket Raccoon isn't a psychopathic rapist. <laughs> yeah, and, like, this movie doesn't have conventional matinee idols as part of that. It's these tough male actors with interesting distinct faces that mm. look like they've lived yeah. and yeah just can't be stressed enough like um, Borgnine Bronson Kennedy and Marvin were all World War II veterans mm. which I don't gives this a real authenticity that a lot of contemporary films inspired by the Dirty Dozen I think like mm. you know? and it's, everything feels so earned by the end of it there's a bit where like the prisoners are like where Robert Ryan comes along to find out what their secret mission is and holds the prisoners hostage basically and Liam Marvin rescues them and there's a bit where Clint, um, what's his name? Posey, the Native American guy, mm. who's actually played by a Czech American called Clint Walker. Um, maybe we've improved in terms of that. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. Um, but he, he um, they like, um, they flip the table on the hostage takers basically, and um, Posey gives Sergeant Bowron, played by Richard Jekyll, his gun back, and Richard Jake and Sergeant Bowron just like buddy buddy elbows him in the ribs, and it's like yes, yeah. yeah. Because at the start he's like, oh, these fucking animals that I have to take care of. Did you find that this movie had a bit of a Top Gun problem? The first Top Gun problem in that maybe too much of it is devoted to like the training. Yeah, sir. Part the partially. Yeah. Stuff, as much as I like love seeing them again, we're going to talk about the wild bunch too. Yeah. I was a bit like, it's annoying that this is taking up so much time. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and I feel like it has like 
to be honest, I feel like you could have you could have done like I know it doesn't rhyme as much, but uh, maybe even like the nasty nine or something. Like you could have lost at least three there. Mm, yeah, sure. the nasty nine I'm as good as like I think the D is stronger. Yeah, yeah, the D, <laughs> D, the D is stronger, but you know, just because there's just too many characters that play, I think. And there's a couple of them where that you just you just don't know who they are. Yeah, I yeah. find that kind of annoying. Yeah. I think there's maybe more time to vote in the book. It's based on, mm. but um, yeah, it was kind of annoying where you're like, I want to know what Donald Sutherland did, you know. Mm, yeah. Um, he plays dead very well, though. Spoilers. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but I think the, all those niggling issues fade away, though, when we get to that final act, which is just brilliantly set up and executed by director Robert Aldridge. So, like, white knuckling and watching it. And uh, aside from Savalas' maggot, who's, like, the worst. Mm. I was surprised. The dirtiest. How much I was, I was. How much I cared about all the prisoners. So I think it's a real testament to the performances and the writing that mm. he cares so much by the end. Um, on Borgon, he was a Robert Aldridge regular. They made six movies together: Vera Cruz, Flight of the Phoenix, which allowed to got a remake; The Dirty Dozen, The Legend of Lila Clara, which was like a notorious bomb; Emperor of the North, which I'm going to talk a little bit at the end. Um, I didn't watch it for this. My dad was kind of convinced me to watch it. That movie sounds insane. Right. Um, Hustle, which I watched for this, um, and. He seems like they just like working together and that Bornheim would show up in his movies no matter what the size of the role it was. And I say that because his role in Dirty Dozen is fairly limited. Yeah. Like he's not one of the Dirty Dozen or its leader uh, that's even matter. Bornheim is actually the army man, this you know, Major General Samborn, who assigns Marvin's character the task of training and leading the Dozen. So Bornheim is not really in large stretches of the movie, like only really appearing in it to you know, check in on how Marvin's character is progressing with the Dozen. That said, I actually do think in this brief screen time, Fortnite takes what could be like a typical stern authority figure who we often see in these kinds of movies and gives them a bit more personality than you mm, might expect. Yeah. Because like, Fortnite's first big scene in the movie where his character Warden and his colleagues are laying out to Marvin's character, Major John Reisman, the, the top brass, like their bosses, want someone to train and lead 12 armed prisoners on a top secret mission and that they think Reisman is the man for the job because he's, he's so tough and skilled, but has had his own battles with authority. And Borgnine's warden is basically, like, showing his dominance to Reisman in that scene. Like, he, he's being condescending, reading Reisman's file. Like, he's like, a lot of fireworks, a lot of transfers, one tough scrape after another. Very short on this one. And then he takes, like, a beat and stares right in Reisman's face and it's like, and says it louder for emphasis, very short on discipline. <laughs> like, anytime Reisman disputes the file, he's like, shut up. <laughs> and then Warden's colleague lays out the mission to Reisman, and Reisman says, like, I'm paraphrasing here, it's like, well, that confirms my suspicions. One of the men that we're working for is a raving lunatic. <laughs> and later says, like, he doesn't like the, this offer for this job. And Borgnine's Warden states, it's not as you say being offered, to which Reisman replies, I'm volunteering. And Warden snaps back, smiling. I'm glad you look at these things so realistically. <laughs> um, however, from then, over the course of the movie, you sort of feel Ward, and though he would never express this, he kind of grows to admire Reisman's moxie. Because mm. um, Reisman leaves the room, and one of Ward's colleagues is like, he's without a doubt the most ill-mannered, ill-disciplined officer it's ever been my displeasure to meet. And Ward's like, he's sure right about one thing. Someone up there must be a raving lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you th- spot this thread throughout the movie? I'm curious. Oh yeah, yeah no certainly yeah yeah in the start at the start at the opening scene because he's really only in about three three scenes three really four, yeah. three or four maybe yeah at the start because at the start he's a real hard ass and then it gets to kind of the war game section where which is kind of like a I don't know a trial run for the actual mission itself and um, he's in Robert Ryan's base which the dirty doesn't have to capture in order to prove that they can do the actual mission and he knows what's going on. Because uh, Charles Bronson arrives as like a with so a couple of others disguised, a couple of others of the dozen disguised, so they can take the base from within. And uh, Major Warden is kind of looking at him. He's got this very subtle smile on his face, which is not so subtle when it's Ernest Borgnine because he's got this big fucking gap tooth grin. Yeah. And uh, and you're like, this guy knows what's going on. And so does George Kennedy, who's riding on the ambulance yeah, yeah. with the rest of the dozen. And then they throw him off, and that's really funny. Yeah, that's <laughs> Um, uh, even before that, like, Ryzen gets in trouble for rewarding the prisoners for their hard work with um, some sex workers. <laughs> one of this movie is, like, pretty gritty. And um, one of Warden's colleagues says to Ryzen, um, So you don't deny that your military establishment was the scene of a drunken party, which no less than seven female civilians took an active part. And Ryzen responds in that, like, classic deadpan Marvin Wayne. Oh, yes, sir, they took an active part, all right. And just as he says that Warden's Warden is taking a drink and chokes on laughing... <laughs> 
but then has to immediately stop to maintain authority and just goes excuse me gentlemen um, and apparently ad-libbed by boring guy in a great moment um and I think the, the other major big moment aside from that is like his character showing up in the last scene for the sort of the sequel stinger where Warden says to Reisman, I'll see you around. Mm. And Warden, a, s- a sequel that wouldn't come along until 18 years later. And made for TV. Yeah. Um, I, I went kind of deep on the sequels for this. Um, Marvin and Boyne did come back for a made for TV sequel 18 years later called The Dirty Dozen, The Next Mission. There were three TV sequels and Boyne is the only actor to appear in all of them. Um, and in two of them, Telly Savalas comes back to play a different character. <laughs> um, I just really like the idea of the producers 20 years later trying to get anyone from the first movie back, even if their character's dying, yeah. bringing up people furiously, being like, George Kennedy said no! <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, what do you mean Clint Walker's dead? <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yeah, again, Borgnine, just a lot of fun in this, even in a limited capacity. And... Um, I think he finds an arc for the character going from begrudgingly working with Marvin's Rise to actually respecting them despite their difference and differences in temperaments and rank. Yeah. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Hello, it's Stephanie Preisner, and I want to tell you about my podcast, Basically. Basically, if you have anything that you don't understand or you want made simple, you contact me and I get someone in. I get an expert in to explain the situation to you. We've had episodes on what is the story with AI? What is the story with trying to conceive? What is the story with Brexit? What is the story with being the Taoiseach? We have so many episodes in our back catalogue for you to listen to. But also, if there's anything that you currently want made simple, contact me on Stephanie Preisner on Instagram and I will get an episode straight for you. I know that face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Am I okay to talk about Hustle now? Go for it. I won't spend too long on this just because Borgnine's only in it for two scenes. But, uh, yeah, so this movie is about the investigation into the death of a young woman who is found dead on a beach in L.A. And the person in charge to lead the investigation is this divorced, jaded cop named Lieutenant Phil Gaines, who's played by uh, Burt Reynolds. And... While he rules it as a suicide, his partner, played by Paul Winfield, is less convinced because he finds evidence that the dead woman was with this wealthy and corrupt attorney named Leo Sellers, played by Eddie Albert, in the run-up to her death. And you get a sense that maybe Gaines isn't pursuing this line of questioning because the lawyer is one of the regulars of Nicole Britton, played by Catherine Deneuve, uh, the call girl who Gaines lives with and is romantically involved. However, as the evidence more and more stacks up against Sellers and as the dead woman's father, played by Ben Johnson, pursues his own investigation, the question is, will Gaines step up and do his job properly? Burt Reynolds and Paul Winfield, two cops who use every trick in the book as they crack down on the nastiest game in town. Why'd you kill those kids? Why'd you kill that old couple? We're gonna make dog food out of you. Burt Reynolds and Paul Winfield fight it. And it's like nothing you've ever seen before. Bingo. Hustle. Where does Ernie come into it? Ernie is uh, basically Paul Gaines's boss, and has right, one or two yeah, scenes. He's the, he's the he's the police chief kind of guy. For sort of fulfilling a similar role to what he does in the Dirty Dozen, where it's like the kind of main hero anti-hero basically shows up to him intermittently throughout the movie and just give him updates, but he's also giving the audience updates. In a right. Way. Yeah. Yeah. But, I get you. I, I should have said this when we were talking about The Dirty Dozen, though. I'm a really big Robert Aldrich fan. Mm. Now, saying that, I've only seen a handful of his movies, and he's made, like, 30, and some of them apparently aren't great. But uh, the ones I have happened to have seen, like Kiss Me Deadly, The Big Knife, Attack, The Dirty Dozen, they're all great genre movies that are just a little bit darker 
a little bit weirder, a little bit more subversive in interesting ways than their contemporaries. And I think Hustle is similar in that respect. And to be honest, I never heard of this movie. Even though it was kind of a hit when it came out, um, I stumbled upon it just doing research into Borgnine. And when I saw it was a neo-noir crime thriller directed by Robert Aldrich and that had Borgnine in it, I was like, check. Then I saw Catherine Deneuve was in it. And I, I just wrote this uh, long article about her Tony Scott vampire movie, The Hunger for Joe, for its 40th anniversary, um, which people should check out. So when I saw her involvement, I was like, double check. And then I saw the poster and I was like, triple check. This poster is incredible. It's basically this very detailed sketch of Deneuve and Reynolds looking very sexy. One tagline just says, they're hot. <laughs> and then another one below adds, she's the call girl. He's the cop. They both take their jobs very seriously. So, um, and also, like, the movie lived up to all of that. It's it's basically like a Raymond Chandler-esque mystery, but with this, uh, seven, with the 70s gritty CD style of both Paul Schrader's hardcore or... Don Siegel's Dirty Harry thrown in but also has this also this emphasis on character over plot and like strong melancholy vibe that I'd associate more with world cinema and I think it's intentional because like obviously Catherine Deneuve is in the movie there's a part of the movie where her and Reynolds' characters are shown going to see the French film uh, 60s French classic A Man and a Woman in a cinema at one point and Maybe audiences nowadays like expecting a more action-packed cop drama that you know ties up its multiple layered plotlines and neat little bow might get a little bit restless with Hustle, but I, I kind of love the moody vibe of it and found the characters played by Reynolds and Deneuve and also Paul Winfield and Ben Johnson really compelling. And um, yeah, Bornon gets the and in this movie in the role of Santuro. Um, as I said, he's Gaines' boss. And again, like in the Durios, and as I said, like he's in there to sort of like help explain the plot to the audience he's sort of a function in that way um he's also bringing a lot of presence as well as this kind of body comic relief which is also kind of similar to the dirty dozen um but also i i think his character serves to show that Gaines's dispassionate approach to his police work where he's trying to avoid anything that could cause trouble or fuss um that's not just a problem with Gaines; it's sort of an institutional problem because there's this part where uh, Reynolds's partner Belgrave, Reynolds's character's partner Belgrave, played by Winfield, raises his concerns to Santoro that the dead girl may have actually been murdered, and Santoro asks Belgrave, like, "Why do you suppose the girl was murdered?" And he says, "Mac, well, it's our job to make sure she wasn't." And Borgnine's like, "Wrong, goddammit! Wrong! We don't look for victims; we're thrown victims," um, which I think is a really good line. Um, so I like this movie and I, I think it should be rescued from the obscurity I, I think it's kind of fallen into and um, if the IFI did this at one of their like mystery matinees I think yeah. it, it would be a real treat it's that, that kind of movie I see what you mean yeah it sounds great I really really liked it it's good it sounds sort of like um, what's the one? is it is it The Driver the one with um, oh, Bruce Ryan O'Neill yeah. Ryan O'Neill and yeah. the, Isabella Anjani it's got yeah. the aesthetic of that, but it's a little bit more pulpy and uh, procedurally, right? Than yeah, that. But it's yeah. got some of the style of that movie, and obviously, like, well, that sounds good because the driver or whatever is like, it's very, it's very much like, wow, that was great, but I couldn't tell you what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> um, we move on to the Wild Bunch. Sure. This is set in 1913 and follows a gang of aging, ruthless outlaws uh, led by Pike, who's played by William Holden, and uh, his right-hand man Dutch, played by Ernest Borgnine, and they're on the run from American bounty hunters after a botch bank robbery leaves several civilians dead. Hiding out in Mexico, the outlaws are hired by a Mexican general named Mapache, played by Emilio Fernandez, to rob a train full of US weapons. However, pulling off the heist while evading the bounty hunters and then retrieving their reward for the job will prove difficult. That's 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 all that's um an understatement. <laughs> an understatement, yeah. Mike had been a gentleman of principle. He still had a principle or two. We're not getting rid of anybody. We're gonna stick together just like it used to be. When you side with a man, you stay with him, and if you can't do that, you're like some animal. You're finished. Dutch had dug for gold. He gave up digging. How many cases did you take from the train? Sixteen cases of rifles. We lost one on the trail. He stole it. Don't get 
should have been a lawyer. He always argued. Hold it! Relax, it's just some champagne we ordered. Do you want to go off on The Wild Bunch? I know this is a movie that you, you really love. Yeah, I've seen it twice now, and um, oh, it's just so much fun. Even if it is like really uh, gnarly. Even even if it is like totally against what Sam Peckinpah had in mind, where he'd be like, "Oh, these people, the the audience will be horrified by the violence," and it's like, actually, no, we want more of this. Please, <laughs> um, we've been out of it for it's we haven't had enough of it for thirty years, so um, we'll we'll take as much as we can get. I think it's like it's like one of these, the last of the honourable outlaws. Um, which is an oxymoron but a compelling one nonetheless and um, you know any movie that opens with like these guys dressed as US soldiers walking into a post office and then the leader saying if they move kill them and then it's boom title card that's a banger from the start all two and a half hours every minute of it on fire Um, you know in 1967 sort of Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde changed everything um, by essentially burying the Hayes Code in a hail of lead and then, I mean, it was already on its way out, but, you know, uh, that was kind of the final nail in the coffin or bullet in the head, depending on um, depending on how much you want to mix your metaphors. And then Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, two years later, changed it all again um, by just sort of creating a certain kind of action filmmaking that would go on to inspire like John Woo and plenty of other Hong Kong filmmakers and lots of um, guys in the 80s and 90s and well into today and uh, I think that's really why I like it so much um, I mean I like the, the whole like melancholic western vibes of you know we're not making it out, out of this one boys and all the all the violence and all the backdrops I think it looks great but I think I like it as a historical document as much as I like it as, as a piece of entertainment It was kind of interesting to revisit The Wild Bunch given the recent reports that John Hillcote is aiming to finally bring Cormac McCarthy's famously brutal Western Blood Meridian to the screen, um, a book which aimed to deglamorize people's perceptions of the Old West that they may have had from, you know, movies and TV up until that point. Uh, and it really which, did a great job. Yeah. I was disgu- every page I turned to that book, I was disgusted. <laughs> sure. And, like, I don't think The Wild Bunch is as violent as Blood Meridian. I've actually, honestly, never read Blood Meridian, but I've, I've heard what happens in it. But, um, yeah. but Wild Bunch... <laughs> Wild Bunch, though, is is plenty violent in moments, and um, I think its director, Sam Peckinpah, and his co-writer, Wayne and Green, are definitely trying to do um, something similar to what McCarthy was doing with Blood Meridian in The Wild Bunch. Um, and there's a couple of great quotes about that. Green said, um, I always liked Westerns, but I always felt they were too heroic and too glamorous. Um, I'd read enough to know that Billy the Kid shot people in the back of the head while they were drinking coffee, uh, which is great. <laughs> and, um, while Peckinpah stated that he wanted to give the audience some idea of what it is to be gunned down. And he also said that his goal was to rebel against the bloodless, sanitized Westerns that came before the Wild Bunch and show that the, the violence of the Old West was terrible and ugly and sickening. But he added something interesting, which kind of ties into what you were saying, where it's like, he, he felt that audiences would still find the movie exciting, despite that, because, in his words, we're all violent people. Um, and I think what what's interesting about The Wild Bunch is that, like, no character or faction in it is conventionally heroic. Like, the, the American mm. bounty hunters working for this uh, corrupt lawman are portrayed as, like, trigger-happy idiots who cause a lot of death. Mexican Federal Army... Uh, you know, General Mapache in this movie is a total sadist. Um, <laughs> the anti-heroes of the movie, like the Wild Bunch, they're pretty terrible too in that, like, you know, being criminals, they use innocent bystanders as human shields. They seem unfazed at the prospect of killing so- anyone, which I think is the point of that intro scene where it's like, if anyone moves, kill them. It doesn't sound like an empty threat. And, um... Like, one of the members of the gang, um, Angel, straight up murders his ex-girlfriend because she left him for another guy. <laughs> and none of the members seem that appalled. It's kind of played off as a joke. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true, yeah. But um, I think this lack of sympathetic protagonist, while it makes Wild Bunch not the easiest Western to just, like, put on and enjoy compared to some other classic of the genre, I think you have to kind of admire Peckinpah's total commitment to the bleak vision. And... Um, even like aside from that glorious train robbery sequence in the middle, where which is just straight up fun, I have to say, um, the action and shirts in this movie are actually sort of hard to take. Um, they go on so long and are so loud, and they really like the the cutting so quick to the extent where you don't know where people are in relation to each other, but you're getting that's probably what it's like to be in a gunfight, like the chaos of it, and like 
you're witnessing like a bullet rip through someone's body, you know, bystanders screaming, kids looking on in horror but also like fascination or, mm. or kids getting involved in the shootout and um it's really shocking you know and like there's actually so much interesting stuff in this movie with children you know like it begins with kids torturing scorpions there are shots throughout the movie of children witnessing carnage or adults acting crudely and then at the end of the movie a little boy is involved in the shootout and all those ideas about um that the ideas that Peckinpah is trying to tackle in this movie about like violence passing down through generations to demystification of the yeah. old west the death of the old west and like this movie set in 1913 the wild bunch of in this film and they're like whoa um, <laughs> all those elements are probably why I didn't really respond to the wild bunch that much when my dad showed it to me as a teen um, I literally remember thinking as I said like um, kind of dour but like great gun gaddling bit at the end mm, yeah. um, but now and, the, then you're an ad- and then you're an adult and it's like oh god the evil that men do yeah exactly and I'm like I'm actually like the violence I find not that fun anymore but the actual <laughs> themes of the movie I find really enjoyable I think you're like I like them both <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Um, they're they're e- equally balanced in my in my mind yeah but um I I under I do understand why this is considered one of the greatest westerns of all time. On board nine in this, I did I didn't expect this going into it, but I actually think this maybe is his best performance of the ones we watched for this. In that I think it unexpectedly allows him to deploy the sort of menacing quality he brought to the likes of Bad Day and Black Rock, with mm. some of the soulfulness he displayed in Marty. Did you yeah, find that? I think- yeah, I th- I think I I I love I love Marty Marty and Joy are over here, um but. I think it's like um, it's it's just it's just much more complex than Marty than Marty is. You know, Marty is a simple but very soulful story. Uh, whereas the Wild Bunch is like this guy has a code. Um, Dutch has a code. They all have a code. Uh, maybe maybe it's not the same to each of them, but they each have their own code. And there's a obviously core tenets that unite them all. But um, I think, and in order to live an outlaw's life, there has to be a code. Otherwise, you're just a murderer and a robber. And although we never really get a clear explanation of the bunches, obviously anachronistic code, we we know they have one. And I think Dutch knows he's doing the wrong things, but he hopes he's doing them for the right reasons, namely, you know, freedom and the money he needs to keep that freedom. And I think that the two Sam Peckinpah films I've seen, this and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, are kind of defined by characters who consider themselves heroes only for that myth to be broken down right in front of them, often as a result of their own actions. Um, so they find them, So they find a new myth, one of self-sacrifice, trying to rebuild themselves as martyrs to their own causes, which sometimes works out, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and sometimes yeah, there's, no, there's no actual self-sacrifice involved, or it's a, the self-sacrifice is a metaphor in itself, it's not necessarily a literal kind of thing, as I understand uh, straw, uh, from straw dogs, perhaps. Mm. Um, yeah, and Dutch, he's an idealist, but he's a practical man too, which is a central conflict of many uh, Peck and Paz characters. You know, they're, they're, there's a bit where he's complaining about Mapachi and he's like, we don't hang nobody. But there's plenty of moments where the, the Wild Bunch are just shooting people in the back or leaving people to die or, you know, abandoning um, fellow gang members to to their fates, whatever whatever they may be. Um, and it's, it's ultimately Dutch's decision that... Um, basically instigates the final shootout and uh spoilers dooms the gang Mm. yeah i i think it's interesting i think there's a bit of like the tom sizemore and heat thing you know with borgnine and this where like the action is the juice because (laughs) he's this loyal right hand man to william holden's character pike and um i love that anytime the crew are about to launch into a heist or gunfight borgnine just breaks out that cheshire cat grin of his like he's delighted like he's getting that fix um yeah, I do think that there is something quite emotionally affecting to Borgnine and Holden's portrayal of men whose way of life, you know, whose raison d'etre is becoming outdated and extinct. And um, there's this bit in the movie where Borgnine's Dutch and Holden's Pike are holding up in the barn and are mournfully drinking after this, like, botched bank robbery. And Pike is talking about, you know, setting up another score. And I think it was, like, to rob U.S. Garrison's and Dutch is like they'll be waiting for us and Pike determinedly says I wouldn't have it any other way and they get interrupted by other people and they sort of change the topic of conversation to other things and they end up talking about how Pike's former partner Thornton played with Robert Ryan again third third appearance in this uh, series movies we watched um, but he was arrested that's a great performance as well actually in The Wild Bunch it's He's really fucking good in it yeah. the last scene is incredible mm, yeah um, 
but um, he was that character was arrested and ended up working against his former crew with these bounty hunters to avoid jail time. But before they turn over to go to sleep, Dutch says to Pike, with this sort of haunting clarity, Pike, I wouldn't have it any other way either. And like, kind of goes to sleep, not really like addressing what he said, like kind of avoiding eye contact. And it's, I think he's talking about their bond and their way of life, and it's, it's, it's oddly powerful. And like throughout the movie, those two have each other's back. Like, there's the bit earlier where Pike Mercy kills one of the gang, and it's like, gets like, I think he gets bookshot in his eyes. And yeah. It's like, it looks horrifying. <laughs> um, and um, the two brothers in the gang, played by Ben Johnson and Warnotes, um, they want to give the deceased a proper burial. Pike is arguing it's pointless, and Borgnine's character Dutch is like, ah, I think the boys are right. I'd like to say a few words for the dear dead departed, but then like he changes tone suddenly and is like, and maybe a few hymns be in order too, followed by a church supper with a choir. And you see Dutch shoot Pike a look like, thanks for having my back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really believe in their bond, and um, I also think that while this is a movie where there's, it's hard to find anyone to have sympathy for. Borgnine's Dutch is maybe the character the viewer likes the best because. Even though he's a ruthless outlaw, he seems to have a bit of an internal code, as you said. And I think Peckby uses the character as a soundboard for some of the questions he's trying to raise in the movie. Like, is it better to be part of a criminal outlaw gang with your friends than make an honest living in a regime that you don't agree with or is evil? Um, yeah, there's the bit where they, they head into the Mexican general's town and Dutch is like... Uh, generalismo hell he's just another bandit grabbing all he can for himself and pike jokes yeah like some others i can mention lads 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 he doesn't say lads 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 <laughs> but um he dutch is really offended by the comparison is like we ain't nothing like him we don't hang anybody but also like and in, in keeping with that like messed up thing about like no one in this movie is a conventional hero they do end up working with an apache <laughs> mm, yeah. uh, to steal u.s weapons uh but to make themselves feel a little bit better about it they let one of their members angel who's part of a rebel group against mapache take some of the weapons but later when angel's with board nine's dutch mapache catches angel out and angel and dutch are outnumbered and dutch has to be like to mapache yeah take him i don't care what you do to him he's a thief but there's something in board nine's delivery where you know like dutch is gonna come back with the full strength of the wild bunch and you know all tonight. four men <laughs> <laughs> but pre- pretty effective killing machines yeah um, that's it that's true yeah um but i think you 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 know that that's gonna happen because board nine like gives the character the soul this integrity um yeah there's also the bit where pike defends thornton for siding with the railroad and he says to dutch like what would you do in his place he gave his word and dutch dismissively says he gave his word to a railroad which is shown to be kind of corrupt in the movie this corrupt system Mm. and pike shoots back it's his word and dutch shouts back that ain't what counts it's who you give it to and sure this is a movie about hardened killers and the character of dutch isn't exempt from that but i think borneine does imbue him with an interiority and at least a sense that like he has some sense of morality and it's important you feel that and believe Dutch and Pike actually like each other and the rest of the Wild Bunch because if you didn't buy it like why would they go back for Angel or why wouldn't they just kill each other over the loot of any score they pulled off so mm. I, I do think yeah, yeah they probably they probably would have killed themselves killed each other over the washers yeah exactly they yeah. The start if, <laughs> if they hadn't if they didn't have that code or that relationship yeah absolutely um I would love to have one of the washers and as a souvenir me- like... a little memento from the movie um <laughs> well I will say though like just to wrap up uh, like i think we did have covered a lot of the heavy hitters in borgnine's filmography either in this episode or you know like we've done escape from new york before we've done the poseidon adventure before but um borgnine had an incredible career that I, I can't wait to keep exploring particularly more of those early movies where he played the villains and like the other i think i think he did six movies with robert aldridge my dad was trying to get me to watch one of those collaborations called emperor of the north and i sort of regret not watching ahead of this um this is the plot from imdb during the Great Depression, the U.S. is full of people who are now homeless. These homeless people are truly hated by Shaq, played by Borgnine, a sadistic railway conductor who swore that none would ride his train for free. However, a homeless man uh, known as A Number One, played by Lee Marvin, is ready to put his life at stake to become a local legend as the first person to survive the trip on Shaq's notorious train. I think that sounds incredible. I can't wait to watch it. Is that is that set like? Far somewhere in the far north, or no? It's set in America. I think North Pole is like a slang term. Oh, okay. I th- I was thinking like, oh, he's on a train in Alaska. Oh, yeah, and no, I don't think so. It's two yeah, men yeah. fighting on this empty it was train. Ori- it was originally called Emperor of the North Pole, and they changed it to Emperor of the North because they were like, the North Pole makes it sound like it's some sort of Christmas movie. Yeah, that's <laughs> it, fair. And it yeah. ain't. Yeah. Um, but he's he's done a couple of um, Aldrich movies as well as on like Vera Cruz and uh, The Legend of Lila Claire and other ones that I can't pull off the top of my head now, but uh, I will be watching them. Um, 
before we wrap up, we should also say that this is going to be the last episode we'll put out in our main feed before summer break, in which we're going to take a few weeks off. Don't worry, though, as we shall return at a to-be-announced later date. And also, there should be some good mini-episodes coming to head subscribers in the next few weeks. But thank you again for everyone for listening. Like, we love doing the show. Always. Rate and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. If you have a friend who's really into the movies, want to recommend them our show, email I know the face pod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to us. Follow us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you love I Know the Face, please consider donating five euro a month to us through Heads to Plus, where you can find special exclusive bonus episodes. More is coming on that front in the next few weeks. Um, Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Heads of Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. I think uh, I got that wrong, but who cares? I've done this enough times, you know <laughs> You know where I can, where you can find me. Exactly. And at fortnightfrights.wordpress.com where I talk about uh, the most iconic uh, horror movies every year for the last hundred years. Next time it's Cat People, which I just watched today. It's great. A lot of fun. The original Cat People. The original Cat People. Yeah. Very different from the 1980s one. I've only ever seen the 1980s one. That one, that one rocks, I have to say. Um, for a variety forever. of reasons, yeah. Yeah, follow me on Letterboxd. I'm Stephen Portio. You can check me at joe.e. Please check out that Hunger article I mentioned. See you later, Cinefoss. Bye-bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.